Welcome to Mindharma, real conversations about what really matters. Our next guest on the Mindharma podcast is Associate Professor Simon Rosenbaum. Simon works at the School of Psychiatry at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, and he is an honorary fellow at the Black Dog Institute. Simon's research focuses on physical activity, mental illness, sport for development and global mental health. Simon has worked with a variety of groups, including youth, veterans, emergency service workers, and refugees. Simon has published over 180 peer-reviewed publications, including a textbook titled Exercise-Based Interventions for Mental Illness. He is most certainly one of the world's leading experts in the field of physical activity and mental health. Simon is an incredibly passionate and genuine person, and I am truly delighted that he took some time to share his research insights and wisdom with us. We hope you enjoy the podcast. We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the various lands on which this podcast is recorded. We acknowledge their deep and ongoing spiritual connection to the land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their ancestors, their elders, and leaders past, present, and emerging. And in doing so, we acknowledge and honour the spirit of Makarata and the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Simon, thank you so much for joining me today for the Mind Dharma podcast. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about exercise and mental health, which is your area of expertise. And you have been researching this for over a decade. Before we dive into the science, I'd love to get some background from you on how you started or where you and why you got interested in this particular area. Yeah, by chance. So it's a bit of a meandering story, I guess. Um, I studied exercise physiology and in my final year ended up uh, getting a job at a, a private mental health hospital out of Richmond. Essentially, they needed someone to open the gym um, and it had been shut for a long time, which is actually really interesting if we think about this whole idea about body and mind. And I mean, we've known for centuries that it's been important. So, uh, but it kind of, I guess, not went out of fashion, but there was a you know a focus on biological stuff, and it sort of changed. And I'm kind of wondering, but yeah, so I got a job out there, started working essentially as a as an exercise physiologist or providing exercise programs for for people in the hospital. Um, and really quickly, the people that I was working with were people from the PTSD unit, so people with post traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. so police, veterans, um, other emergency service workers, and and I just kept hearing from them the same thing, which was how important exercise was to their recovery um, and their day-to-day management and, you know, so that they could live their best life with the condition they were living with. But there was no support for it. There were no resources. There was no recognition that this was actually an important part of treatment. Um, that was how I got interested in, in the idea of contributing to that evidence base and trying to, to help sort of advocate for this to be seen as part of treatment, not this sort of added side-on that we just use if we've got time and if we can be bothered Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's really interesting. So very early on, the seed was sown and you saw this connection in a real world setting. What have you learned since? So then you, you, you know, fast track a decade or so later, you've done a tremendous amount of research uh, in this area. What have you and your colleagues discovered? If we look, I know it's hard to summarize all those papers, but what are the core findings you think? No, I think, I think it's actually quite easy to summarize it, which is essentially that when we exercise, we feel good and it helps us feel better. That's really it. And I guess the, the other key points are that probably the people who need it the most or who stand to benefit the most are often the least likely to have access um, mm. for, for a number of reasons, whether it's it's sort of social determinant factors, whether it's, um, you know, other resources, whether it's the motivation, the challenges that are associated with living with, with mental illness that can, that can be a barrier. So really what I guess uh, to summarise the key finding is that exercise or movement, physical activity can help improve mental health. Um, it can help protect mental health, so prevent mm-hmm. certain things from happening. And it also can protect our and promote our physical health. So really that's the, the key findings that we've done work across the, the spectrum of, of you know, whether it's post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, schizophrenia. Um, I do a lot of work with refugee populations as well. Um, so it really doesn't matter about the, the type of group or the people we're working with the, the evidence you know what we see time and time again is that you know it's, it's this um transcultural transdiagnostic strategy that can help contribute to, to people's lives mm. powerful 
So I have to ask then, like, what are, what is the exercise that helps most? Because, you know, some people love volleyball, some people love walking, some people don't like exercising at all, I should probably, but they, they think they don't maybe, but what is the most beneficial exercise? Because there's so much information out there and often people find that quite overwhelming. Yeah, there's this um, funny quote I heard once that it was, there's two types of people, those that enjoy exercise and those that haven't found the right type of exercise for them. Oh, I like that, yeah. Yeah, I think it's actually, you know, quite true. So, you know, and this idea of enjoyment is actually, you know, to answer that question, the enjoyment is critical. Um, We know that that's one of the biggest predictors, you know, long-term adherence, people's ability to to, to be physically active, that you've got to enjoy what you do. So if we think about the the types of activities, I mean, what sort of activity do you like doing? I love bushwalking. I love being out in the bush, yeah, and uh, swimming, yoga, those kind of, but being out in nature for some reason. And how about okay. you? So, well, just on that note, if someone said yeah. to you, you're only allowed to exercise in a gym that was, you know, there was no natural sunlight, there was no, how would you find me. that? Oh, yeah, exactly. Just, and I've tried, I have to say, like I used to be into the gym when I was younger, but now I find it a bit, for me, it's a bit soul crushing, but I can appreciate some people do love it. They love that structure. You know, they love that yeah. space, gets them in the but zone. But I think that's the best answer to the question you know every person is different and so we've got to take into account what they like what they don't like what fits into their routine what won't so if that's bushwalking and yoga great fantastic we know that you know that can contribute for other people it might be going to the gym it might be you know having those structured classes where they know they can just turn up tune out and that that's what works for them mm-hmm. so it's really that there is not one type of activity that that fits all or the one type of activity that is better than another for mental health it's really about um, finding that activity someone enjoys and it's some sort of movement you know move more sit less and try and huff, huff and puff when you can that's kind of the the way we summarize the evidence base um you know we hear a lot about aerobic exercise so that heart and lung exercise gets our heart rate up uh, makes breathing a bit harder there is more evidence for that type of activity but that's not because that type of activity is better it's just because we have more evidence around right. that type of activity and it is easier to do research if you think about it from a research point of view. It's easier to do things like walking or running or cycling even than it is to look at something like team sports or resistance-based exercises, which require a bit more equipment, a bit more planning, a bit more expertise. We do definitely see at the moment there's more more data coming out showing the, the benefits of things like resistance training, yoga, Pilates, whatever that movement is. It's just about being physically active. Right. And so on that note, last time we chat, you mentioned these two phrases that I hadn't really heard before, this idea of green gym and blue gym. One of them definitely resonates with me. Can you share a little bit about what that actually refers to? Yeah, they they sound good, don't they? So the the green gym essentially refers to any activity that's done outside. Um, You know, and you mentioned that before, whether it's out in nature or um, simply just being out in sunshine or if you're lucky enough to live in a climate that has sunshine. So we do know that there's benefits there of, of being outside. The blue gym refers to, to activity done in water. And for some people, you know, they swear by the water. If you're, again, if you're lucky enough to live by the water, um, so whether that's surfing or swimming or whatever it is. I think what's important when we think about those things is that we don't, we don't promote the message that it has to be one of those, one, or it has to be one or the other. Um, if you live in a landlocked country, for example, then you know, the, the idea of a blue gym might sound great, but it's just not practical. Mm. Um, and it's also unfair to say that you're not going to experience the mental health benefits of activity of if, you, if you're not in water. You know, I think we're seeing some amazing things emerging, such as surf therapy, um, you know, mountain biking therapy, rock climbing therapy, and essentially what, what they all are, they're examples of what we would call meaningful physical activity that's ideally outside, it's done with friends or with, with a social component, um, and it's promoting that, that activity and challenging people as well. I love that. And you kind of shared the social component to this as well, just there, this idea of exercising together or gathering together. And years ago, I was part of a running group. I wasn't much of a runner, but I loved the social aspect of it. And then we all end up fundraising for the Black Dog Institute and did a half marathon. And it was quite an incredible experience because we're all gathering regularly to train, which probably had, you know, you have two mental health benefits there, don't you? The the social component and and exercise. So what is it about exercising together and and spending time together that kind of has that added quality yeah, to it? I, think, yeah. I mean, that's a great example, but there's also this idea of, I mean, partly accountability. You know, mm-hmm. we know that, and that's regardless of whether someone's experiencing mental health symptoms or not, you know, we all 
can slack off at times, you know, and it's easy to choose to to sit on the couch or whatever it is rather than turning up to that class. But if you know that you've got a group there, there's that level of accountability or even just another buddy, you know, an exercise buddy or someone that you can go for a walk with, it's far easier to then hold yourself accountable. Mm. Um, That social interaction is also really important and, and often what we find is that shared identity um that, that can create that that environment where people you know really want to participate and want to be active and it's not it, it's not a chore it's actually something that you enjoy and again that comes back to that enjoyment idea which is really you know you wouldn't have kept going to that running group i imagine if it wasn't enjoyable there wasn't something God, that no that, not yeah. at all yeah <laughs> exactly that's so true I wanted to ask you about COVID and what you've noticed too in the last year, because certainly around this time last year, we were in lockdown and and from the end of March to April, May, it seemed in the media, they were sharing how exercise equipment or personal gym equipment was just sold out across this country anyway. People were buying up kettlebells and exercise bikes and whatnot. Do you think that's all gathering dust now or have we gotten better at exercise in this country? What's going on here? I hope there's I'm not too cynical. No, no, no. There's a lot to unpack there. I mean, first of all, there's a difference between exercise and physical activity mm. um, and they're, they're different things. So physical activity is is kind of a broad description for, for any bodily movement. So that could be, you know, walking, uh, running, going to the gym, playing sport, whatever it is. Under physical activity, a subset of that is, is exercise, which is this idea of structured structured activity for the sake of improving health, typically. Mm. Um, now, have there been meaningful changes in physical activity levels of Australians over the past couple of decades? You know, unfortunately not, really. The idea of, you know, the, in the impact of COVID, it's kind of tricky. We have lots of data coming out, particularly cross-sectional studies, showing that there, had, there were changes in physical activity levels during COVID, whether they went up, whether they went down in different countries, it's all a bit of a, a mess and there's so much data coming out trying to make sense of that. I guess from the, the idea about exercise and mental health, what has been really interesting and what COVID's brought out is it's put on the agenda, I think, the importance of movement to our mental health. You know, what was interesting, if we think about the reasons we were allowed out during those really strict lockdowns, it was essentially to buy food or to do an hour of exercise. Mm. Um, We had the World Health Organization coming out saying, encouraging people to keep moving and keep active during during COVID, um, which I think was really interesting in terms of trying to promote the message and promote the importance of activity because we know that it is a determinant of our mental health, how much we move and how much we're, we're inactive. It's related to, to how we feel. It's related to depression and anxiety and all those factors. So I think in some ways COVID was positive for trying to, to get people talking about this idea that, well, no, I'm, I'm exercising not because of my weight or because of how I look, but because of how I feel. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really a key point because, you know, what we've um, seen, I think, over the, the past few decades, especially with the rise of, you know, things like Fitzbo and all that sort of stuff is this almost hijacking of exercise by the, the, mm. the sort of fitness industry as opposed to this idea that it's actually a right and it's something that's, that's yeah. actually related to health um, and is super important for everyone, not just people that are lucky enough to, to look a certain way. A hundred percent. Can you just unpack for people what Fitzbo is? Because you mentioned that last time we chat too. And I thought, how have I not heard this yet? I have been exposed to it on social media, maybe without even completely realizing it. Yeah. I mean, I think if people are on social media, then it's impossible not to be exposed to it in one way or another. I think the link between um, what we're seeing is the, the rise of sort of, you know, health experts, essentially, you know, using social media, but it's often really related to looks. You know, we have, there's often beautiful people that, that I'm sure work hard. It's not a criticism of them um, to look a certain way, um, but that's held up as an ideal that can be obtained if we exercise more, if we eat a certain way. And the reality is that's just not true. And unfortunately, that can be a deterrent for people because instead of trying to promote the idea about living a healthy lifestyle and finding finding that activity we enjoy and doing it for ourselves and because of how it makes us feel and how we sleep and how we just you know generally approach life mm-hmm. it's done to try and chase this external goal that's actually not a reality um mm-hmm. so that can be really disappointing you know we know even if we look at the science and the data if we ask people why they want to exercise including people living with with mental illness um the number one factor is weight loss now that's that's really problematic when we look at the the data around how likely people that are obese or overweight 
uh, to lose that weight and achieve a normal weight without, you know, interventions like surgery, it's really, really low. It's really difficult. Mm. And so it's just important that, and it's not saying that weight isn't a risk factor. Of course it is, but there are so many factors that play into that independent of activity um, that we really need to try and reclaim this idea about exercise. It's, it's for health. It's for how we feel as, as the key driver. I think that's so important, Simon, too, what you're sharing, because part of this is inviting people to really tune into their internal world about their experiences with physical activity versus getting hooked on perhaps unrealistic or really harsh expectations to look a certain way. And I've certainly, I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but just in the last few weeks on, I'm not very active on social media, but I have noticed that they there have been people who are fitness experts and they're sharing they're doing this interesting thing where they're sharing a version that they've often put up on Instagram and then the reality version. Like, I don't always look this way. This is me with my, you know, with a little bit of a, a muffin top or looking this certain way when I'm doing squats. And I think they're trying to show the hum- the human side to it that, yeah, there's an Instagram filter that's happening. For sure. I think, you know, there and there's a role for that. I think there are some really, really good examples of campaigns um, showing that I would say is kind of the real world or or real people. You know, This Girl Can was a great campaign at Public Health England um, with some fantastic images. I think there was a similar one here in in Australia led out of Victoria, but actually presenting, you know, depictions of of real women engaging in activity. And I'm saying women because I think, you know, a lot of the Fitspo stuff is really targeted there. It's, It's, you know, there is a gendered element to it. So I think there are increasingly good examples and, you know, we're seeing the rise in women's sport as well, which is fantastic and plays into it as well. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the social media stuff can be a bit of a – it can be – it's got its role. There's definitely benefits. And, you know, some of the work that we're doing is actually using social media to deliver um, exercise programs to, to certain groups. So, for example, emergency service workers who have that shared identity and can build mm-hmm. that social relationship. So there are positives. It's not all bad, but I think mm-hmm. we just got to be careful about the messaging that it's sending and how we link exercise to aesthetics and to, to how we look as opposed mm-hmm. to the ideal about how we feel. Absolutely. Now, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the neuroprotective factors or how exercise can directly impact our brain health. And I've noticed over the years when I exercise not only do I feel more grounded and happier afterwards, like even my morning walk this morning, I was paying more attention to it because I knew I was going to be chatting with you. So I thought, oh yeah, I really do feel good after this walk in the sunshine. But I also noticed uh, that my brain was clear and this is something that shows up, like having that mental clarity or I feel like some of that, even if I walk in the afternoon after a long stressful day, some of that mental fogginess tends to clear after exercising. What are your insights on these, you know, the cognitive element to exercise and even healthy aging? How do we keep our brains healthy with exercise, I guess? It's a tricky one. So first I'll declare up front, I'm not a neuroscientist and I'm not the right person to to, to (laughs) answer that question around mechanisms. And I often try and dodge this question if I'm honest. But I know I'm putting um, you on on the spot now. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It's, (laughs) It's a fair question. I think, you know, one of the important things to think about is that we, we first just break down what who are we talking about here? Like, so, so, you know, there's obviously you going for a walk this morning. Mm. Um, you went for a walk outside. There's different things happening inside your brain compared to if we said someone um, at a completely different age who may be living with a psychotic illness who has been, you know, you know, completely sedentary or inactive for a really long period of time and what's happening in their body and their brain if they manage to get up out of bed and do a 10-minute walk and hop back into bed. Mm. Um, so there's different things happening. There's different levels of conditioning. There's different levels of fitness um, that are going into that. So there's probably different changes and adaptations occurring. Mm. So it's kind of thinking about that for starters. So who who exactly are we talking about? The second thing would be, are we talking about the acute benefits of, of a single session of exercise? So you just said then you, you went out, you went for a walk, your brain was a bit less foggy, you had a bit more attention. So what's happening in that that acute, you know, 20, 30-minute period versus the long-term adaptations to, to exercise. Our bodies become fitter. Um, you know, we know the cardiovascular changes that occur. We know the changes in the, in the muscular system that occurs um, over, you know, a six- to 12-week period. So there's different different ways of answering that, thinking about the mm. different spectrum. And I know I'm dodging the question here. Um, the other, So that's the first thing. The second thing, if we look at the mechanisms, you know, there, there's 
a range of different me- mechanisms from biological through to, to social, um, through to psychological. You know, I think we often are quick to jump on the sort of endorphin, you know, looking at neurochemical bandwagon, but what about the fact that you've, you've achieved something by going for that walk? You know, maybe you weren't feeling great. You didn't feel like you wanted to do it, but you forced yourself, you went outside and then you had that feeling of great. I've actually achieved something. I was able to overcome that. Mm. Um, you know, what is the, the neurochemical basis behind that? I'm not sure. Um, a bit but of I dopamine, think I think. A bit of that yeah. lovely dopamine floating around. Yeah, I hear you. Completely, completely. Mm-hmm. So I think there's there's a range of, of potential benefits. If we look into it in more detail, you know, one of the proposed mechanisms has been around promotion of brain, BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor and hippocampal neurogenesis. So we know that there are structural, there are things that change in the brain mm-hmm. um, when, we, when we exercise mm-hmm. um, and that our bodies adapt over the long term. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think the other thing is around, if we think about fitness, you know, our mm-hmm. cardiorespiratory fitness, how, how well our body um, how much oxygen we can consume and how how physically capable our bodies are. We're increasingly seeing the evidence showing that link to our emotional health and our, our psychological health and well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some really interesting work showing that uh, among veterans, so uh, army recruits, those that are physically fitter at baseline are less likely to, to experience mental health symptoms following training and following a mm-hmm. period of, of service, which, um, you know, I think is interesting, this idea about physical fitness being related to psychological resilience as well. Yes, absolutely. And I, I definitely know in our research and resiliency, we were we were seeing quite a lot of papers highlighting that relationship, that it is this potentially protective factor and a malleable factor, you know, something that we can really work on very early on in, in different careers and in different occupations that have that high risk in terms of mental health. Even, I mean, even we're seeing some emerging data around intrusions and people that are that are uh, physically fitter, that it's, mm-hmm. it could potentially be protective against intrusions following exposure to a traumatic experience, which I think wow. is super interesting because um, it is modifiable. It's highly modifiable. We can, we can, we may not be able to change the, the amount of trauma that someone's exposed to, but we can change how, how physically fit their body is. Yeah, a hundred percent. Now, If we look at all these benefits, just to summarize, so we've got exercise being good for our brains, it's good for our bodies, it's reducing inflammation. You mentioned that there may be even benefits to the hippocampus, so our memory functioning, cognitive benefits, mental health, it's helping us lead healthier, happier lives, essentially. So what is it that gets in the way of us exercising. There's so many benefits. Why is it as human beings we struggle to prioritize? Now I'm generalizing, but I know I've struggled myself at times. And when you mentioned, maybe you found it rewarding to go for a walk. I'm totally that type of person. I feel like, yes, I tick that off my list. And then I feel a bit guilty on the other day that I don't exercise. So what are your insights on this? Why can we, how can we prioritize our exercise more? Yeah, I love it. There's so much in that. I mean, the guilt factor is really interesting. And I think one of the, if we look at the physical activity guidelines, you know, I think guilt is something that we've ignored. And, and often what the guidelines do, I think, is that they do make people feel guilty. Mm. Um, and I think it's really interesting thinking about activity, how we promote it. Often it's promoted around avoiding a negative. So it's saying you should be active so you don't develop diabetes, so you don't develop obesity or whatever it is, instead of obtaining a positive, mm. which is, you know, there here are all the benefits you could get. You will feel like you know, there, there is a reward. You will feel um, you might sleep better. You will feel less anxious or those sorts of factors that we don't see. We actually just see it around avoiding the negative. Coming back to the actual question, which is what gets in the way. So mm. I think there's lots of factors. One is how we actually conceptualize the idea of exercise. And coming back to what we said at the start around people that, that you know, we often meet people who just say, no, it's not for me. I don't do it. And if we sort of try to unpack that and see what's going on, we know that, for example, someone's experience with uh, PE during school with physical education in high school, that actually can predict their exercise habits later in life, mm-hmm. um, which makes a lot of sense. If you feel that you, you know, if we talk uh, maybe at school, weren't necessarily the most athletic kid in class, weren't picked first for all the sporting teams, you know, maybe sport was something that you really, really dreaded you know, on the day. And that can set up for a, for a lifetime of, of you know, negative views towards activity and towards 
um, you know, find that idea of enjoyment, which we know is so critical. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a range of factors from someone's previous experience with activity through to the resources that they have available at that point in time. Um, you know, we've got to be careful. We don't just tell people, hey, exercise because it's, it's good for you and you're going to feel better. If people's social situation, if their, you know, availability to resources don't actually allow that to happen, um, mm. then that's a real, you know, critical issue. If they're living in an environment where it's not safe to walk down the street, they don't have footpaths, they don't have access to clothing, appropriate clothing, um, then they're barriers that actually we need to try and address at a systemic level rather than just putting the blame on the individual and saying, look, it's your fault, you're not exercising enough. I mean, on that note, and I know you've done work with um, different groups around the world and in developing countries where these barriers are real and true, what can be done from that physical activity space there where the, when the resources aren't available? And obviously, it, it, one, it's highlighting it as a social issue that we need to be addressing. But what have you, what have you and your team been doing with these groups? Yeah, so I think we've, I've seen some really inspiring stories around the world of communities that really are disadvantaged and, and have, you know, very, very limited access to, to even basic um, necessities you know mm-hmm. so you know for example the Rohingya community living in Bangladesh there's just under a million displaced refugees um, living in in the biggest refugee camp in the world and even in that context we have stories of, of some of the research that we've done of, of women that would wake up early before the men are awake in camp and they would go on walks together around the camp mm-hmm. um, and that was something that no one externally had come to say this is a good idea you should do this that they did it themselves. And when we asked them why, the, the answer was around this idea of relieving tension. And tension is the, you know, a local idiom of distress. Mm. Um, and so this is a, you know, a community identified strategy. This is, in, you know, again, that idea that it's transcultural. It doesn't matter where we are in the world. It's, it's completely universal. You know, I think when you think about children, and I've sort of said this a lot, but I love this line. If you, you know, if you give a child a ball, they're going to kick it and look for a friend to kick it to. And I think that sums up so beautifully the the, the social component of, of sport and activity, um, that idea of enjoyment, that idea of fun, which we know is critical. So even in these communities where there's, there's you know, very, very limited access, activity is still seen as, as really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are things that can be done no matter what, no matter where you are and no matter what you have access to with, with almost nothing. Um, the key there is asking what do those communities want and what do they want to how do they, you know, what support do they need mm-hmm. in order to do what they want to do, whatever's culturally appropriate. Um, so, for example, in the camps, you know, there are a lot of women-friendly spaces. Um, there are opportunities in there for, for things, different sorts of movement, you know, mm-hmm. things like, um, you know, holding poses, so yoga boast activities, mm-hmm. body weight resistance exercises, dancing, mm-hmm. whatever it is that they want to do. I think the key is that we just provide the resources that are needed in those communities yeah, for them to, to be able to do what they want. Absolutely, to empower them and support them in doing what they want. But I think there's lessons here for everyone too that, you know, I guess a good example is when you're traveling, which no one is doing at the moment. And it's often been been in airports where you're waiting around for hours and you see people carrying a yoga mat or they're doing wall squats or they're doing something to help keep movement in the body before they get that next flight or or maybe, you know, they, they don't have access to resources, but they've they've learned different exercises over the years that they're able to do just on their own without any equipment. Are there any of those exercises that stand out to you in particular that can be quite helpful? Yeah, um, I mean, it, it really, any of them. And I know that's a pretty mm-hmm. bad answer, but, yeah. um, you know, the, the New York Times have the, the seven-minute workout that became quite famous. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, that's right. I know that one. Mm. That's a great a great collection of things that can be done anywhere. I think that was originally designed to be used in a hotel room or something, but, you know, it, all it needs is a chair. Um, so there are really good examples. I think the, the thing to think about is that exercise is a stress that we're putting the body under, mm. but very quickly the body adapts and it gets stronger and it adapts to that stress. In order to get the same almost hit or the same adaptation, we need to increase the stress. Mm. So that can mean either doing more exercise or making it more intense or changing it up so that it's different. You know, really often when I was working with people, they'd say, look, I'm, I'm really active. I walk, you know, 10K a day or whatever it is. 
and then that's fine. But how, if you sort of ask, well, how long have you been doing it for? And they said, well, 20 years. It's like, well, yeah. So that's no longer putting your body under, under the stress that it needs because it's adapted to that and it's doing it really comfortably. Our bodies are really efficient. They become really good at, at minimizing energy expenditure. So mm. as we become fitter, you know, we, it's, it's less and less effort to do the same activity. And that's why we need to keep mixing it up. And that goes the same for the mental health benefits too. It's about finding something different, mixing it up and increasing that level of stress one way or another. Now, that's really interesting. So even so in increasing the intensity or adding something new seems to make a big difference in terms of the benefit. Yeah, we, we talk yeah. about the FIT principle, which stands for frequency, intensity, time and type. And essentially, we can manipulate any of those factors in an exercise program. Mm-hmm. So it could be that, you know, you were you're managing one session a week and we increase that to, to two or three sessions. Um, it could be the intensity and that could be a simple question of asking yourself, I go for a walk every day. How hard is this on a scale of zero to 10? If 10 out of 10 was I'm completely sprinting and can't imagine doing anything more and zero is I'm, I'm lying on the couch, you know, where is that walk? And you could keep track of that and say, well, it's about a three. And then you could say, okay, I'm going to try and bump that up to a five for the next mm. few sessions. That would be the intensity um, the time, you know, the duration, that's pretty pretty straightforward. Um, and the type, you might then mix it up and say, well, I'm going to add some interval training into my walk. And so between, you know, this certain block, I might walk really quickly and try and get that intensity up to a, to a six or seven and then I'll drop back down. So there's different ways you can manipulate, you know, what you're doing, even if you have a really limited amount of time. Um, it doesn't need a long amount. That's brilliant. So I'm going to just ask you about some research that you and your colleagues completed last year. I'm going to share a quote from this paper, actually. So it was published in 2020, and this is uh, from the opening part of the paper. It states, people living with mental illness die on average 15 years earlier than the general population, primarily due to preventable and premature cardiovascular disease. And then it goes on to state, Lifestyle interventions are effective in reducing cardiometabolic risk, but are not routinely provided to mental health consumers. So this paper describes the study you and your team completed in one of the local health districts in New South Wales, Australia, and you decided to focus on healthcare staff who were working in a mental health setting. And the intervention provided staff with exercise training and nutritional information and coaching. So why did you guys decide to focus on the staff and what did you find? What was the impact of this? It's a really interesting study. Yeah. So uh, I guess going back to that statistic, so, you know, it, it really is shocking. It's been described it as is. a scandal. Mm. Um, you know, Graham Thornicroft is a professor from King's College and wrote this fantastic editorial describing it as a scandal of premature mortality and essentially arguing that if we had this same um, dis- disparity in life expectancy for another group of the population that didn't carry the same stigma as people living with mental illness, that there would be absolute public outrage and we'd be doing something about it. So it is true that regardless of the diagnosis, um, so across the spectrum of of mental illness, it is associated with with cardiovascular disease and a premature Mm. mortality. So people are dying earlier and it is preventable. So this idea that we we can intervene and, and that what we call lifestyle interventions, so targeting those those what we call those modifiable risk factors, smoking, physical inactivity, poor diet and sleep. If we address mm-hmm. those four factors, we can improve someone's physical health, um, which has knock-on effects on mental health as well. So knowing that and knowing that this is a really important part of, of mental health care, we've been doing a lot of work here at South East Sydney Local Health District targeting the people living with mental illness are being treated by the health district. So we've got programs such as the Keeping the Body in Mind program, which mm. uh, provides exercise and dietary interventions and motivational support uh, to consumers that are, that are in the service. Um, but what we realised very quickly was that there was a, a gap in the knowledge and confidence of the mental health staff. And there was sort of these siloing of care where we have the, the physical health care or, you know, the physical health team and the mental health team. You know, and there's this great image that we sometimes use, this cartoon of a, of a body where the head is separated from the body and you've got, you know, the psychiatrist, psychologist dealing with the head and then the cardiologist, the, you know, physios, the exercise physiologist dealing with the body and we pretend that they're, they're not connected, but of course they are. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as part of that, we realise that there's a gap in the training of the mental health workforce. Mm. Similarly, there's a gap in the training of the physical health workforce and actually we need to bring them together. So when we, we looked at that, we, we realised that one of the 
best ways that we could do that was to actually give the mental health workforce access to the exact same thing that we provide to the patients so they can see exactly what it is that 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 physical health team the exercise the diet people are going to do and that way they would be more likely to to promote it they'd be more involved they'd feel more comfortable Um, and so that's exactly what we did with 212 uh, of the staff in the mental health service they got access to a a four-week lifestyle intervention um, the exact same as what we offered to to the consumers and that was really interesting i you know i remember at baseline i think it was about seven percent said they knew what a dietitian did and what an exercise physiologist did but follow-up you know about 95 percent said they had a really clear idea about what it is that those professions wow, do that's brilliant um, now that's super important if you think about you're relying on this workforce to actually encourage and promote this you know the dietitian or the exercise physiologist might see someone you know maybe an hour a week if they're lucky the nurses the the clinical team you know, everyone else, you know, psychologists, they're going to have a lot more contact. Mm-hmm. And if everyone's pushing the same message, mm-hmm. if everyone's on board with the same healthy lifestyle messages, you know, smoking, all that stuff, you're going to get a better outcome. On a side note, we know that we know that doctors and we know that health professionals that are more active themselves are more likely to promote that to, to their clients. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it makes sense. If you think about would you take smoking cessation advice from someone who's got a cigarette in their hand? Probably not. Yeah. Um, and, again, <laughs> it's, it's really important. Yeah. This isn't related to weight. It's not about weight. It's mm-hmm. not a, about how people look. It's about how, you know, their, their lifestyle and what's happening there. And there. So we, we had really, uh, you know, promising findings from that showing that it impacted on how the clinicians interacted with, with patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's been pushed forward as a sort of best practice recommendation. If we're trying to integrate these services, we're trying to, you know, break down those silos that I spoke about before between physical health, and mental health, we need to look at training. And this is a, it's a, it's a global issue. We've just finished some work in, um, with psychiatrists and psychologists in India, looking at their knowledge and confidence of these physical health interventions. And, you know, what we see regardless of country is that the mental health professionals, you know, seem to acknowledge that this is important. We do need to address physical health. But they don't necessarily have the confidence or the knowledge about how to do so. Um, yes. And so it's really important that we try and address that gap. What you're speaking to here really is a need for more postgraduate training potentially for psychologists. Or I would say, I know in my training, we're aware of the link between exercise, physical activity and mental health. But it certainly wasn't taught as a core component of our training. What you're saying is we probably should be looking at making this a core component of a master's program or any kind of four plus two training for psychologists or mental health nurses, psychiatrists. Let's get it in maybe even undergraduate training. Definitely. I think there's some great stuff happening out of the UK. So there's a, a, a fantastic pharmacist there named Anne Gates who, who's got a great social media presence with an account called Exercise Works. And she's been pushing this great project around upskilling particularly undergraduate medical students um, around physical activity and nutrition and if you look at the you know the the amount of time in those curriculums that they spend on on sort of lifestyle stuff or exercise and diet we're talking a matter of hours within an Mm. entire degree and it's just not enough and I know there's a lot to cover um, but it really this idea about making every contact count that's what she she promotes this idea that every Every health interaction with every health professional is an opportunity to reinforce these messages. Now, that's not necessarily going to be enough for, you know, to, to particularly address the most you know, disadvantaged or the people that have the most barriers. They're going to need more structured help, and we need to match the level of, of support with the needs of the individual. That's a given. Mm. But at some level, we, we absolutely need to address the training requirements of health professionals to ensure that it's better integrated. And that goes the same with exercise physiologists, dietitians, physiotherapists. Why isn't mental health a core part of their training? Yes. Um, and increasingly it is, but we need to see those professions into better integrated. You know, the, there's going to be a better outcome for the for the consumer if every health professional is on the same page and uh, is able to push the same message. A hundred percent. So to summarise, we need more postgraduate training programs. We need we need more core training on this topic in undergraduate across all allied health across all. Absolutely. So I think, you know, one of the interesting things is, you know, for example, if we think about uh, mental health first aid, you know, that's a, that's a really useful program. And we know that, you know, I think all health professionals or nearly everyone has to do a first aid certificate. Mm-hmm. Why don't we have the same requirement for a mental health first aid? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sporting clubs, 
coaches, youth sport, there's a missed opportunity there if we were upskilling that workforce where even they had some basic knowledge around screening and identification so that if they could see what the, that maybe they knew the warning signs, they knew what to look for, mm-hmm. um, that might actually help people engage you know, treatment earlier, yeah. um, which we know is a factor of, you know, it's important for, for outcomes. Absolutely. So let's just go back to those people who have who you have worked with and I have worked with over many years who struggle with mental health difficulties. And in particular, I've worked with a lot of folks who struggle with common mental health conditions such as anxiety and depression. And it is, you know, very common for folks, and I've do have experienced a lot of anxiety in my life. So during those periods, even when you know physical activity is good, it may still be quite hard to engage in those type of activities. And I've certainly seen that with folks I've worked with who've had depression. So it just feels like, oh, I don't have the energy for that or I just can't quite do that today. What is your advice there, Simon? What would you what would you suggest? The, the first thing um, to really, really stress is that exercise is not the silver bullet it's not going to cure everything it's not gonna you know we've got to be really careful about that and I've spoken a lot about this because often the media I mean the media lover you know their job is to write a headline but having messages like exercise is the same as therapy or the same as medication is is just a it's not true and b it does nothing to actually help promote what the messaging we need to promote all it does is make people feel even worse Mm -hmm. it makes people feel like it's their fault it makes people feel like you know, if they still need, you know, if they are accessing mental health care, which people should, despite mm. their activity levels, um, that they're, they've somehow failed, you know, and mm. that's, that's ridiculous. So we've got to be really careful about the messaging. What we know, what the, the science tells us is that exercise should be a component of care. It should, you know, everyone, regardless of, of what they're being treated for or seeking help for, should be offered, you know, a, a structured exercise program as part of that treatment. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, you know, and one of the key things here is if we think about accessing, you know, trauma-informed care, that can take, you know, there's a huge wait list. In the meantime, in that period where someone has, has put their hand up and said, I need help, and while they're waiting, why can't we be offering them, you know, a, a structured exercise intervention during that period? Um, Absolutely. You know, the, at best, you know, worst-case scenario, we might improve physical health, have no impact on mental health, but we've helped someone get a bit stronger and get a bit fitter. Um, best case scenario, it might actually, you know, change the trajectory of that, you know, of the mental health symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's that's the first thing is thinking about, you know, how do we um, ensure that we're we're matching the the level of support to the person's need, but we're not pushing the message that this will cure everyone and it's you know it's your fault. And it's also acknowledging, you know, the amount of times I've, I I often look at the the social media comments on media articles that have written about you know, this stuff saying that exercise is helpful. And there's always comments from people saying, look, F off. Like, I, yeah. I can't get out of bed. Stop exactly. telling me to exercise. Exactly. And that's the reality in that moment for sure. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's we've actually got to accept that and, and listen mm-hmm. to that. For but sure. then I think the next point is to say, okay, so what services can we provide? What support can we provide to those people to actually help them to 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 think about this as part of treatment? And to then engage, what do they need in order for that to happen? Um, It's probably not someone saying, hey, pull your socks up and go for a run because that's not going to help. You know, the the science tells us things that can help, which is, you know, having individualised structured support in in a supportive environment. So we know that using, you know, allied health professionals, exercise physiologists and physiotherapists, dietitians with the food does make a difference um, to the outcomes. But it's also accepting that, you know, I think with, with this lifestyle stuff, we often assume that it's just something we should have under control and we should just be able to say, look, I've decided that I'm going to exercise and now I'm exercising. But that's not the way it works. And, the, you know, there's not other aspects of, of treatment that we would say, well, I should just be able to do it myself. We would actually reach out and get help. Mm. Um, and we do have referral pathways. We do have infrastructure here in Australia so that people can actually access that help yes. that's needed in order for things like exercise. Other examples like a black dog, you know, the black dog exercise clinic, that's a great example of, mm. of, of trying to actually integrate this as part of care and have that, um, you know, actually give it the, the recognition that it deserves to provide the right support to people. 100%. I think something you shared last time we spoke, Simon, too, was this idea of helping and supporting people do what's workable for them at that time point, rather than get very stuck on very specific goals that 
if you can move a little, then that can be just as powerful on your terms. Or, But the, the term workability seemed to show up. And would you say that's a, that's probably a key factor here too, for depending on where people are on their healing journey? Definitely. And I'm just, I mean, it kind of makes me think about the work I mentioned earlier that we're doing on social media. And that's being led by a PhD student here, Grace McEwen. But what's been really interesting about that work is that it is a physical activity program. You know, the idea is that we're trying to increase people's activity levels. But what we're really finding, and, and that's focusing on, on emergency service workers who are maybe living with PTSD or at risk mm. of PTSD, is that we put them into a, a closed group and we encourage discussion. And what really comes out of that is this, you know, this, this shared identity that they talk about. It's that social interaction first and the activity comes second. And so I think that the benefits of what we're seeing there is not purely related to the the actual act of exercising. This comes back to your question, you know, in your walk this morning, mm. um, you know, what are, the, what are the mechanisms there? I think partly it's that support that they're getting um, mm. and then they're likely to talk about activity and, and try and support each other. So, you know, what's been interesting there is that we've got people posting in that group saying that maybe they're having a bad day or they're needing some help. And before the facilitators get a chance to even respond, we've got peer support workers, but also the the other people in the group are actually responding and saying, you know, let's chat, I'm, I'm free. And they're oh, able to support wonderful. each other. Yeah. And I think that's a that's another benefit of, of this work. You know, it's it's it doesn't we don't need to think about exercise as being this medicalized, overly medicalized strategy, which at some points it can be. And, and not overly complicated either, because I th- like I mentioned earlier, sometimes people just feel overwhelmed by the amount of information that can be out there or recommendations or fitness experts. And on that note, I'd love to ask you your thoughts on technology in this space, because you've mentioned, of course, the, the pros and cons of social media when it's when it's used mindfully, it can be a very powerful resource. But what about those other pieces of technology like Fitbits and smart watches? Uh, are they helpful to us or can they get in the way? <laughs> I think I think both. I mean, yeah. we, so we our experience with using Fitbits in our groups has been really positive. I think what's interesting, what I've seen for people that have never used them before is that there's an initial period in maybe maybe one to two weeks where they then start understanding their own baseline. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that in itself is really, really helpful because they suddenly go, okay, I know that if I, you know, if I don't want to buy lunch today and I just eat it at my desk, I only get these many steps. Whereas if I go and I then walk around the block and I do this, I get this many steps. So I'm going to keep doing that. So I think they can be really useful for providing people that self-monitoring. They can be helpful. We use them for a bit of friendly competition as well. So we recruit emergency service workers and their sort of spouse or loved one or, or friend. Um, and then we often play them off against each other. And so then we have, you know, someone in the house saying, well, I've got to go for a walk so I need to get a thousand okay. steps. And I'll say, well, you can't beat me, so I need to come with you. So that's been really useful. They can also have an impact on that guilt factor and they can go too far. People become too too obsessed with checking it or too concerned about, you know, meeting certain certain goals or achieving certain things. So there is a good and bad, and they can go too far. But we also hear about people that, you know, if they go out for a run, they've left their, their tracker at home, they go, well, I'm not even going to bother going for a run because unless I can track it, there's no point. I don't want to do it. Yeah, um, that's true. <laughs> so, yeah, you're, you're smiling. You're not one of them. You've got had a bit of that before. I definitely had a Fitbit where I was a bit obsessional. I became a bit obsessed with it for a while. But I do agree. I think early on, I found it very motivating. And it gave a bit of that biofeedback on, you know, my sleep and my sleep quality. And it would remind me to drink water, which I think is a great little, I think because often we can forget. Or those, it would set timers for us to move when you're sitting a lot in your work. I think that's quite powerful. But after a period... I do think the guilt factor would kick in for me. I know not everyone's sim- not everyone's the same, obviously, but I do think sometimes, oh gosh, I haven't gotten the tick today, or I only I only yeah. did three thousand steps. How bad is that? So, <laughs> I, th- I think yeah, you're spot on, and I think we need to think about it as a learning tool. Mm. Um, and maybe we say, right, I'm going to use this for two weeks and learn what I can about myself, and then put it away for a bit and see. Mm. It's not it's not this forever thing that you know. Now I'm, I'm a slave to this this device. I think we've got to make it work for us. 
And that means saying, okay, what can I learn about myself? What can I learn about my my sleep and my activity? And we start to notice patterns. You know, for example, one of the things that I used to use a lot was getting people when they were just starting to keep track of their steps. I would also get them to keep a little mood diary. Mm. Um, And often for some people you would see very clearly that they'd have a big day of activity and the next day their mood was better. You know, they'd be feeling better. And it wasn't until that was written down that we could actually point that out to them and say, you know, can you see this pattern here? And say, oh, yeah, okay, that is linked. You know, I do more activity, I sleep better, and then the next day I feel better. And it's also these factors are all interrelated. We know if we're moving more, then often that changes our diet because we're sort of more interested in what, you know, our dietary choices that we're making. Similarly, if we're trying to focus on eating better, we might be more likely to move more. Mm. So they're all interrelated. And it's just, I think, about, you know, small steps, taking small steps and, you know, realizing that small changes over a long period of time add up to something big. Absolutely. Now, if we take a quick look at workplaces, because that's a space that's emerging more and more for holding early intervention in terms of protecting people's long-term mental health and well-being. And within the workplace health promotion arena, exercise programs often appear in that space. What are your thoughts on what these type of exercise programs should be doing if you're aiming to promote good well-being and mental health in the workplace? Yeah, I think I mean you're you're definitely the expert in that topic, so I'm I'm reluctant to to say too much. What I would say is I think often these initiatives that we come up with, whilst good meaning, probably don't reach the people who need it the most. Mm. So, for example, if you're offering let's say subsidised gym memberships, I think what we what we typically see is that the ones that already had a gym membership or were planning on buying one will will utilise that. Mm. It's unlikely to reach the people that that have those really negative views and, and don't feel comfortable in those environments. You know, on that note, it is intimidating going to a gym. If you've, you know, never been before, it's a, it's a intimidating, they can often, it's not necessarily a welcoming environment. Um, same For with group sure. classes. Mm. So I think with those um, workplace programs, if we, you know, think back to the, that study of ours that you mentioned that we did last year with the, the mental health workforce, you know, we really target that to the individual and then what what did the individual need um, based on their own, A, circumstances, B, exercise history and C, available time, what is going to work for them? So I think with the exercise component, we know that, you know, they're really critical questions to ask um, and also realising that a one-size-fits-all approach won't work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having, you know, subsidised gym memberships might be great and for parts of the workforce they might love it and that might be really good. Having group-based exercise classes before or after work or yoga or whatever it is might be another strategy. But the, the reality is we're going to need a few of these strategies to actually reach the most amount of people. Um, mm-hmm. And also recognising that people are going to come in and out of stuff. So, you know, we, we typically, regardless of who we're talking about, you know, we often know with exercise we need a combination of individual and group-based sessions in order to try and change people's behavior um the reason being if you just offer group classes you're not going to reach everyone because there'll be some people that are too intimidated or 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 don't feel comfortable they don't have the confidence to attend Mm. whereas if they have the option to start one-on-one they're more likely to then say okay i've met the instructor one-on-one or i've met that person i now feel more comfortable going but then they're going to shuffle in and out of that then they might drop off they might need more of those one-on-one sessions but having that combination is the best approach for sure so allowing that flexibility and perhaps checking in with your colleagues, your workforce in terms of what's worked for them in the past, what would they be interested in doing? So you, you almost need to do a bit of a bit of homework on your on the, your people in your organisation, and then you can offer these different options. Definitely. Yeah. Now I'm going to ask you about your own exercise and self-care plan because not everyone would be aware unless you've worked in academia at some point or you currently are just how stressful being a researcher can be at times you know there's there's quite a lot going on you have deadlines you have a lot of paperwork you're supervising master's students and PhD students and you've got overseas collaborations you just shared that you're doing more uh, training in Harvard shortly where you have to stay up really late and do the training and then you have the, you know, the added responsibility of getting your research completed and sharing those papers in peer and getting them published in peer-reviewed articles, which is a journey in itself. And on top of that, you've got to apply for grant money. So there's a nice synopsis of what a life of a, I'm going to put out, put off people from becoming researchers. There's also a lot of rewarding elements to it. What works for you, Simon, in terms of managing the stresses of your job and what keeps you going? What keeps you interested? <laughs> I, wish, 
I wish I had a good answer for managing the stresses. I don't know. To be to be honest, I'm still figuring it out. Um, yeah. It's a it's a bit of a a roller coaster um, for me personally trying to figure all that out at the moment. I do know that for me personally that my own activity, my own sleep, and my own nutrition play a big part in how I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that when things get particularly stressful or there's a deadline, they're the first things that I let go. But I also know that then I feel the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, and the times when I have felt able to keep those things under control, I do feel better and I feel more able to manage that stress. Mm-hmm. But it's that chicken and the egg, you know, how, how do you do that? It's a constant battle. So, you know, some of the strategies that I use is, is trying to make myself accountable to having friends and that I'll catch up with over the activities that I enjoy. So that's, you know, outdoor sport. I really enjoy rock climbing and kayaking. They're kind of my main activities. So making sure that I try and lock that in ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So I know then I'll catch up with mates and that, that will be that release. I'm a shocker with food, if I'm honest. So I've got uh, a friend who's a, a mental health dietitian and academic Scott Teasdale, and he would be horrified if he saw what I what I was typically <laughs> eating. But I, I do my best and try to to have those small changes and small things that I can do. But I guess I just I also know that we often have this all or nothing view of exercise, and we think no, I'm at the moment I'm not exercising, so I don't want to know about it because it feels like you have to be all in or all out. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually not the case and there's plenty of times that I've taken myself to the gym or to the beach for 10 minutes and gone and sat on the exercise bike for 10 minutes and gone home and I haven't worked up a sweat I haven't probably had any physiological impact on my body but it's had a big impact on on how I feel and it's been mm-hmm. something and mm-hmm. so giving yourself permission that you know you know we see this with former athletes for example unless they can exercise at an intensity or at a you know rate that they used to there's no point doing anything and that's actually not the case so it's changing our relationship with activity and how we think about activity and the role it plays in our life um so that's a constant process it's not something that happens you know immediately it's something that takes actually work i think around how to how you think about it over time and how you keep challenging your own negative thoughts around it i agree with you there because i think in a lot of different professions and i've definitely seen it among my colleagues at the BDI and UNSW and, and researchers and also in the mental health arena that sometimes our work is so important too that it can dominate a little and that value is so strong that our self-care routines can easily fall away, especially during big deadlines or projects that are due. Or even if you're just, you've had a very uh, busy week in private practice or working in a hospital, that that getting that work or providing that duty of care becomes top of your list. And I certainly know what first responders, that can be the case too. So uh, it's almost like part of the skills and the practices is how do we put these things that work for us in terms of self-care at the top of our list? I think a couple of things that I try to think about is one, I know that I'll actually be more efficient in my work Mm. and I'm going to do better work if Mm -hmm. I'm feeling better. So actually there are times where I'm, I'm really struggling or I just, I'm not getting what I need to get done and actually just saying, well, I guess this takes time to figure out about yourself and also the luxury of being able to do this. But if I can just say, no, actually I'm going to walk away from this for half an hour and go for a run or whatever it is that I'm going to do, probably wouldn't be running, but some sort of activity. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that I'm then going to come back and feel better. So while at the time there's that guilt around, well, I'm not doing what I should be doing. I find it better for me to just get up and, and go and do something else and then come back to it's going to be better. But it's hard to make that decision, I think. And yes. it's, it's also a luxury to be able to do that. Yeah. I, look, I wholeheartedly agree. I think in, in our program um, in Mind Dharma, one of the things we introduce is this idea that, you know, self-care isn't selfish for this very reason, because, you know, if you're engaging regularly in your self-care and yes, you'll go up and down with it being a priority, that over time, your work, like you said, your work will benefit, your relationships will benefit, all the other values in your life will benefit from you putting your self-care, whatever that may be, including your physical activity first. But I agree, it is a bit of a journey really honoring that because it's so easy for it to fall away. But I think that's just part of the practice in itself that yes, at times you will find your self-care drifting down to the bottom of the list just by virtue of who you are. And then our part of our work is making sure it it finds its way back to the top of our to-do list. And I think over time, we I have seen people get better at it, you know. But I'd love to ask you a final question. What are your three tips for our listeners that may help them to continue to move every day, to move in a way that's workable for them? I think one is to, I would probably just encourage people to think about what activity and movement means to them. Like what's what's driving us to do it? 
And if the first thing is is weight or is how we look, then I'd, I'd just really think about that and think about if that's if that's something that is helpful and is is motivating. The second thing would be to really think about what are the what are the activities that you enjoy. Um, what's something that you can find that that is fun and that can actually you know add something to your life as opposed to being a chore? Because we know that that's not going to work long term if it's something we don't enjoy. And and finally, I think you know kind of related this idea about open goals. You know, there's some great work being done. A colleague of mine, Christian Swan, is doing work. You know, we hear a lot about smart goals and people always mm-hmm. go to this smart goals. You know, specific, measurable you know, really specific around exercise, but he's actually challenging that at the moment and saying, look, when it comes to activity, actually open goals. So just saying to yourself, I'm going to try and be more active today mm-hmm. um, might actually be more effective at changing our behaviour in, in the short term. I guess there are probably three things that I would I would think about and also just reaching out for help, talking to people, you know, seeking help. This isn't something that you people shouldn't feel that they should just be able to do this themselves. Mm-hmm. Um you know, there are experts out there that can can help. And so, yeah, I would say try and utilize that if you, if you can. They're very compassionate tips. I really like that, especially the idea of it being open and reaching out for support and joy. I love that, that idea that joy is maybe our gateway into physical activity, that we may have perhaps have been underestimating it, that we don't allow ourselves time to just enjoy it. And then the physical activity happens naturally. Yeah, yeah, it's not a chore, exactly. Not, not a chore. Simon, thank you so much for joining us and um, we wish you all the very best in your important research and we look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thanks so much for having me. The Mindarma podcast shares stories of personal resilience and mental health. If you are impacted by any of the stories shared in the podcast, please consider reaching out for support. In Australia, you may choose to call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you are living outside of Australia, please visit befrienders.org for support services in your country. Thank you for joining us on the Mindama podcast. We invite you to discover even more with the Mindama e-learning program. Mindama is an award-winning program being used by thousands of workers as they take on some of the world's most challenging roles. Learn more about your brain. Unwind with relaxing guided mindfulness exercises and discover simple, practical skills you can use whenever the going gets tough. Find out more at mindarma.com. Purchase online, or better still, ask your boss about bringing Mindarma into your workplace.